We are glad to be here with you, and uh, someone's got the lights for us. Wonderful. We've been speaking about, just as Vicki introduced, how God is seeking to move people in a direction of abundant health. And Jesus spoke these words when he was on the earth, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And so God is interested in that kind of experience for each one of us. We're going to be speaking in this session about something that I call Longevity Plus. Longevity Plus, and perhaps you'll see why I call it that as we move through our presentation this afternoon. But I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever felt like you were missing out on something? This was from one of our recent family backpacking trips. We live on the borders of the Tahoe National Forest, and we don't have to drive far to uh, go uh, hiking out in country like this. So these are our three children uh, wearing their best hiking clothes for a picture. But um, you might say, no, we don't feel like we're missing out. We, we've got, uh, you know, the place where the Lord wants us is right here in Michigan, and we've got beautiful things here too. I lived in Michigan for several years and appreciate this part of the country as well. But often in our lives, we feel that we're missing things on a spiritual level. And I told you that as we go through this series, I'm going to be sharing with you some insights from a series that we call Healing Insights from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you weren't here yesterday, it's eight 30-minute presentations that go through the entire Gospel of Mark, especially looking at health implications. And so one of the stories we look at there is actually one that comes to us from the context of Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, Jesus has been blessing the children. And there's someone that observes Jesus blessing the children and feels a tremendous sense of lack. Even though from a human perspective, we would see this man as seemingly having it all together. We often refer to him as the rich young ruler. Boy, you talk about things that our culture values today, right? Everyone wants to be younger, richer, and have more influence, at least in the secular world. I know many of you are content right where you're at. But this man, who seemed to have everything, came to Jesus. It says he came running, and he kneels to Jesus, and he said, Good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? And most of you know the dialogue that follows. Jesus asks him a question. Why do you call me good? Why do you think Jesus was asking that? He was trying to draw him out, I think. Jesus knew he was good because he was God. He was trying to see if this young man realized who he was. And then Jesus, as he addressed this man's question, longing really for assurance of eternity, Jesus spoke about obedience to a number of the commandments that deal with our relationship with other people. And yesterday we were speaking some about social health. You could say, well, this fits right in with that type of perspective. But Mark records this detail, that if you don't read all the Gospels, Mark's included, you miss this salient point. It says Jesus looking at him what? loved him. I think it's especially important to realize 
what the scriptures tell us about Jesus' attitude to this young man. Because often, as we see the dialogue play out, and you know where it's going, we often think in terms of people who love us giving us things, not asking us to leave things. That's what Jesus does, though. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Now, if I told you something like that today, if I told you to give up a bunch of things, a lot of people would walk out and they'd say, who does that guy think we are? I mean, who does he think he is? More importantly, telling us that we've got to give up all these things. But this is Jesus speaking. And why is he telling this man to leave something? It's because he loves him. And that man, that young man, when he hears Jesus' words, it says he left grieved, for he had great possessions. It's a fascinating story. You know, we know in the spiritual realm, accepting Jesus' gift of salvation is tied. You can't can't separate it from accepting Jesus as the Lord of our lives. I, I, I remember some years ago, I was teaching in the public college system in New England, and uh, I visited one of the interdenominational Christian groups there on the campus, and the person facilitating the discussion was telling about how she had accepted Jesus as her Savior, but not as her Lord. And this is something that people in evangelical circles talk about, but I don't read any such experience in the Bible. If Jesus is your Savior, he's your Lord, right? And uh, that means that we will be surrendered to Jesus' voice. I'm not saying we, we have a perfect walk, and every time God asks us something, we do it. But the point is, if we accept Jesus as our Savior, we're accepting him as our Lord. And what this young man was being asked to do was to sacrifice and to follow the one who he identified as the good master. And he wouldn't do it. So, sure, there's a spiritual dimension that's first and foremost in this story, but the question I have is, does God sometimes ask us to give up other practices in order to better serve him? What do you think? You know, and we we have to be careful in health circles. Tomorrow we'll speak about this in more detail as we speak about brain health. We're going to look tomorrow, just so you have a preview. Uh, We actually have the DVD, maybe even floating around back there, called The Brain Health Revolution. We'll speak about that tomorrow. But we'll open with the topic dealing with BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And we'll tell you about this amazing compound that your brain makes itself that helps protect you from a host of diseases like Alzheimer's and depression and Parkinson's disease and even stroke. And in that context, we'll take some time, and I'm giving a preview because I want you to see where we're going. I'm going to explain to you that no matter how high your BDNF levels are, though, you can still have a stroke, you can still have depression, you can still have Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. The point is, Jesus is interested in our walk with him first and foremost. 
And when he asks us to, to lay aside certain things, he especially, just like he did with this rich young ruler, is trying to help us have a more dynamic relationship with him. Now, it just so happens that those very same practices increase the likelihood of us living a longer time and having less disease. But if you don't realize it, we're in a battleground, aren't we? We're in a battleground. And there are drunk drivers that crash into people who are following the health message, and they end up with complications. Are you aware of this? There are diseases that knock on our doors. There are genetic tendencies. There's things in the environment. So as we speak about healthful living, I remind people this is not a context from which to judge other people. So we speak about longevity today. As we'll go through some things that can help you live longer and better, don't go back to church and say, well, look at that person. Obviously, they look, you know, I mean, they're, they're only 30. They look like they're 70. They obviously didn't listen to Dr. DeRosa's lecture. And we better give them our DVD and tell them, you know, brother, sister, I think you are missing uh, the information Dr. DeRose gave. You know, I, I've noticed over the years, sometimes people that are the most conscientious sometimes have things that happen to them. Have you noticed that? So God is trying to lead us into an experience that invigorates our service for him, no matter what the future holds. By the way, how long did Jesus live? He only lived 33 years. How about John the Baptist? Did he live to a ripe old age? How about most of the disciples, with the exception of John? They all suffered untimely ends. Now we say, well, sure, you know, Herod was chopping off heads and people were being crucified. But the point is Satan works through disease processes as well. So let's not forget that as we go on our journey. And we want to look today at turning back the clock. But we want to realize that it is not totally our prerogative to determine how long we'll live, even though we do have an influence. Let me tell you one more thing while we're speaking about this. I often point out to people something that most of you don't know. Probably, unless you've heard me speak, you've not heard me disclose this detail. But I bear a striking resemblance to one relative in the DeRose bloodlines, and uh, I look the most like a great uncle who died when he was 30 from cancer. Now, if my appearance tracks with my genetic predisposition to cancer, um, the deck may be stacked against me. And uh, later this year, if you found out I was diagnosed with cancer, what would some of you be tempted to say? Yeah, what a hypocrite, right? Yeah, he was sneaking stuff behind our backs. But I wanna, I'm going to tell you something. Some of you are going to find this shocking but I am actually quite a bit older than 30. That was not supposed to be a joke. No, it was, actually. But, but here's my point. So we can have genetic things that predispose us to, to, to terrible things. And this is true, by the way, with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, many of these conditions, we know they're genetic markers. And so for me to die at a, quote, young age, may have been a manifestation of God's blessing that I lived as long as I did, even though it was shorter than many of you. 
You following along? So longevity actually, although we like to think of it in terms of absolute terms, it's really a relative issue for any one of us because we all have these inherited tendencies and environmental tendencies and other things, even some of our own poor lifestyle choices that I made before I knew any better and some that I made after I knew better, right? So all these things follow us and some are very resilient and they live to, you know, a hundred. And you ask them, well, how did you live so long? Well, I just made sure, you know, I had my six pack of beer and the, you know, three cigars every day. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, you know how it works. You know how it works. But let's, in that context, talk about things that God has given us that enhance not only our likelihood of living a long time, but living better. That's why we call it longevity plus. And it all centers on this word. This is what we're going to look at today. And some of you see hemoreology, and I know what happens in some groups. They say, oh, no. Another one of the same old, same old Adventist lectures on hemoreology, right? Some of you, thank you. <laughs> hemoreology, it, it's a fascinating subject. Some, you know, I, I'm always worried when I talk about this that some people think, well, here's obviously a guy who gives a lot of health talks. One night he was laying in bed, couldn't sleep, and said, I've got to come up with something new. You know, and I opened up the medical dictionary and just kind of, you know, pointed, turned the flashlight on. Hemoreology, what's that? Oh, I bet I could give a talk on that. No, it wasn't that way at all. Hemoreology is an important cutting-edge medical science. It comes from the roots, hemo, that refers to blood, and rheology that deals with the science relating to the flow of complex fluids or matter. So hemoreology, very literally, if you read a medical dictionary, you'd read things like this, and the science of the physical properties of blood flow in the circulatory system. Or maybe you prefer a little bit more erudite definition, like the science of the relation of pressures, flow, volumes, and resistances in blood vessels. And some of you are saying, well, what does that all mean? Well, simply, hemoreology is the science of the red blood cell. It's basically talking about things that help your blood flow more smoothly. If we were to put it in a nutshell, hemoreology is the science of blood fluidity. And the better your blood flows, the better you can nourish your tissues and remove wastes. So why is hemoreology important? Years ago, many of you perhaps realize that someone who I view as divinely inspired wrote these words, perfect health depends on perfect circulation. Now, if people, no doubt, as they read that over the years, have said things like, what beautiful poetry. You know, isn't that perfect health depends on perfect circulation? I want to tell you that this is not just poetry. This is cutting-edge 2016 medical science. And if you can tell me how this individual living in the 1800s and early 1900s came up with this other than divine inspiration, uh, I would uh, not believe you. <laughs> so we're going to look at hemoreology. I don't want to spend a lot of time with the science behind it because we want to get to things that you can do to improve your blood fluidity. 
But I want to just show you that this really is solid medical science. It's not just some esoteric topic that I dreamed up. There are whole societies and whole medical journals that are devoted to hemorrheology. And I'll actually show you some as we go along here. But these are some of the disease states that are connected with hemorrheology. Again, no matter how good your blood fluidity, you could still have a stroke or a heart attack. You could still go blind. You could still get cancer. But the better your blood fluidity, the less your risk of these conditions, as well as things that we would say have no bearing necessarily on longevity, but affect quality of life. By the way, vision is one of those things that people don't die from, but affect their quality of life. So it is with cognitive abilities. You could live to be 100, but if you had dementia at 80, what would be the quality of your life for those last 20 years? So we speak about longevity plus. So this is looking not just at living a long time. Yes, these practices that improve blood fluidity will increase the likelihood that you will live longer, superimposed on whatever genetic, environmental, early life history background you have. But they will also improve the quality of your life. And of course, when we speak about cognitive function, I'll tell you, I think one of the unique contributions of the Adventist health message to the world's understanding of health benefits is recognizing the spiritual connection with our health practices. God wants to have a vibrant communication with you. And how does God communicate to us? That's right, it's through our brain. The Holy Spirit speaks to our brain. And so if you want to have the closest walk with Jesus, you want to have the best hemorrheology. Okay? Well, let's look at some of the research on this. We do have a whole uh, series on it, a two-hour mini-series, two one-hour presentations that, no surprise, perhaps we call Longevity Plus. And uh, all the DVDs that we have here on sale, all the, that we produce, which is most every one that, that we brought, we produce at Compass Health, and they're all half price. So if you go on my website, this will cost you $19.95. Uh, they're here for $10. So all the DVDs are half price. So take advantage of it while you're here because like I shared with some of you yesterday, I'm, I'm sure that I'm going to hear from some of you when we're back home, my wife who handles the orders, she'll say, well, look, here's a bunch of people from Michigan ordering the DVDs. We'll buy them here. And, uh, and by the way, if you um, run a store or if you have a, a ministry, they're cheaper than wholesale. I mean, if you call us and you want to order them wholesale, standard wholesale is 40% off. The cover price is 50% off here, half price. So anyway, there are some challenges in, in assessing the hemorrheology data. And uh, so don't just think you can fall asleep during the lecture and just go Google hemorrheology and quickly get an overview of this. We want to walk you through a few of these things. and We'll do it by looking at some of the various conditions that are associated with poor blood fluidity. First, we're going to look at stroke. Now, this was a fascinating study. And by the way, it was published in a journal called Clinical hemorrheology and microcirculation. This is a whole medical journal that just deals with these topics. So over a decade ago, they looked at people with evidence of impaired blood flow to their brain. They either had had strokes or TIAs. Do you all know what a TIA is? TIA stands for transient ischemic attack. Sometimes we call it, uh, for lay purposes, a mini stroke. It looks just like a stroke, but it will resolve by definition within 24 hours. It's usually in a matter of minutes or a few hours when it resolves. So if it looks like someone's having a stroke and those symptoms go away in short order, 
they had a TIA, but it's also an indicator of impaired circulation of the brain. So they're comparing these some 300 patients with 73 healthy controls, and let's see what they found. They found the worse they scored in a number of markers, the more likely they were to have a stroke or a TIA. By the way, every one of these markers is an indicator of blood fluidity. Let me just explain some of them to you. First one is hematocrit. Do any of you know what hematocrit is? Yeah, it's related to iron in the blood. It's technically hematocrit is the percentage of your blood made up of red blood cells. So if your hematocrit is 50, what does that mean? That's right, 50% of your blood. If we drew drew a a, a pint of blood from you, 50% of the volume of that blood would be made up of red blood cells. So that's what hematocrit is. Is a high hematocrit good or bad? Now, I told you, you know, kind of in passing, you may not have picked up on this, but I've been a college teacher in the past, and I always like to ask my students difficult questions. Some of them would call them trick questions, okay? Uh, yeah, you don't want hematocrit too low. We call that anemia, and then that interferes with you getting adequate oxygen to the brain. Higher hematocrits do allow you to carry more oxygen. And some of you realize there are athletes who um, over the years have tried to improve their hematocrit using various techniques. In the old days, they did what we called autologous transfusions. They take have blood removed from them, and then a uh, you know, month or two before a race, and then have that blood reinfused so it raised their hematocrit to higher levels. Can they perform better? Yes, they actually can. They carry more oxygen. But there is a price. What do you think suffers with a high hematocrit? Actually, I'm going to give you a clue. How many of you realize that we're talking about hemorrheology in this lecture? You picked up on that? Many of the answers to my questions will be hemorrheology. That will be the answer, okay? So what do you think suffers when their hematocrit is very high? Wow, this is a, a sharp group. <laughs> Even right after lunch, this is good. That's exactly right. So hemorrheology suffers. Many of these um, high-end, uh, high these uh, athletes, world-class cyclists died because of blood doping in the 80s and 90s, okay? They would have heart attacks during or right after a race. Presumably they got their blood much less fluid And then they got somewhat dehydrated during the race, and their blood just clotted in the heart or whatever. They died, okay? So a high hematocrit is not desirable. Plasma viscosity. What is viscosity anyway? Thickness. Thickness. Now, if I had a sink, I would take this glass of water that someone so considerately placed up here for me, and I would just pour it. How rapidly would this water pour out? Very quickly. Is water a viscous fluid? No, it has low viscosity. How about if someone less considerate had filled a glass for me if I was getting thirsty with honey? How rapidly would the honey pour out if I pour it? So honey is a more viscous substance. You you understand that concept, right? So we can actually measure your blood viscosity. And if the blood is more viscous, it doesn't flow as smoothly. 
By the way, all of these things that were measured, higher hematocrit, worse viscosity, or higher viscosity, plasma fibrinogen, a clotting protein, and the tendency of red blood cells to stick together, all of these factors increase the risk of stroke, or TIA. Let's look at another example. We're talking about why blood fluidity is important. Then we're going to show how you can improve your blood fluidity. Coronary artery disease. This is fascinating data. It's now looking at one of those components we just talked about, a plasma viscosity. They measured in this longitudinal study, a study where they identified a group of people, followed them over time, and they're going to look and see whether certain factors can predict whether or not they have certain conditions. In this particular study, they're looking at heart disease. And what they found is if you looked at the people in the population who had the most fluid blood as per viscosity measurements, and you compared them with the quarter of the population that had the worst viscosity, there was something like a nearly fourfold increased risk of having a heart attack. This is not cholesterol. This isn't blood pressure. This isn't weight. This is a factor that most people don't even measure. And what we're going to find in this presentation is we can do simple things that improve our viscosity, improve our blood fluidity, and can thus decrease the risk of these diseases. Now, let me point something out. This is a reference group. They still had heart attacks. So, you know, you get the wrong genes and the wrong background, and no matter how good your blood fluidity is, you can still have a heart attack. You may not realize this. Adventist health study. You know, Seventh-day Adventists have been shown to live longer than the average population. One of the questions is, well, what do Adventists die from then? You know, if they have lower rates of heart disease and other things, well, what are they dying from? Well, actually, the answer is Seventh-day Adventists die from the same things that everyone else dies from. They just tend to die later. And uh, later, maybe 20 years old. If you got some genes for uh, glioblastoma multiforme, you know, a serious brain cancer, it didn't happen when you were 15, God gave you five extra years because of, but we, what do we say when that happens? We say it is too young, right? By the way, do you realize no one ever dies at the right time? No, really, I'm serious. No one dies at the right time. There are people right now that wish they were dead, there are people who are in nursing homes, and there's families that say, why doesn't mom or dad just die? I mean, what kind of, you know, they're miserable. And, uh, and yet, if we die, no matter how old we are, if you're functioning well, we say it was too young. We say they were 95, but they were, you know, out running marathons and chopping wood. Why did they die so early? Nobody dies at the right time. By the way, the whole point is death is an enemy, Right. And uh, we have something much better to look forward to than just a physical health message. I'm so thankful that God has plans for all of us to be together for eternity. That's his intention, isn't it? What about blindness? How many people die from blindness in America? You sure? No one dies from blindness? Okay, someone says unless they fall in a hole. Is that what you said? Or get hit by a car, walk in the middle of the street. Even then, the cause of death would not be blindness, okay? It would be, you know, some kind of traumatic injury. So I've never seen a death certificate that had blindness as the cause of death. So whether you have your vision or not is not going to necessarily directly relate to your longevity, but surely it relates to the quality of life, right? 
So we're talking about longevity plus. I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking at uh, the data on blindness. We go through this too. If you're interested in macular degeneration and glaucoma, they're, they're connected to blood fluidity. And if you have those conditions and are wanting to try to decrease their progression, you want to be concerned about hemorrheology. We could speak a lot about cancer too. I'm not going to look a lot at this. There's some interesting data on it. By the way, again, none of these things are guarantees you will not have cancer, but they increase the likelihood that you will live longer even if you do have cancer. This is a study that illustrates that. This is a study looking at plasma viscosity in women that had gynecologic cancer. So female cancers, they were looking at cancers of the opening of the womb. We call it cancer of the cervix as well as cancer of the ovary. And they found that if they measured the plasma viscosity prior to their surgical interventions, they had decreased risk of having clots. Now, most of you, if you're following along with the lecture, you're yawning at about this point. You're saying, well, of course, if your blood is more fluid, you're less likely to have clots. But that wasn't what was so remarkable about this study. What was so remarkable is they found that viscosity was also a significant risk factor for overall survival in these women. So, if a person has metastatic cancer, if cancer is spread throughout the body, or if they have cancer diagnosed that has not yet spread, that person may die of the cancer, but there are things that can increase the lifespan. And that life increase may, if it's pancreatic cancer, may only be in weeks or months. It doesn't mean lifestyle doesn't have any bearing. But uh, here's what the researchers wrote when they made this connection between better hemorrheology, better blood fluidity, and less risk of dying from cancer. Here's what they said. They said, in gynecologic cancer patients, the combination of an increase in RBC aggregation and plasma viscosity impairs blood flow properties. And they say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Why are you putting up all this medical language? Let me just tell you what they're saying here. They're talking about the stickiness of your red blood cells, and they're talking about plasma viscosity. What do these two factors, among others, determine? What do they affect? What do they affect? Hemorrheology, yes, yes, you got it. That's exactly what I was looking for. They affect hemorrheology. And what happens if your hemorrheology is impaired, then you don't get good circulation to the tiny little blood vessels. That's what we call the microcirculation. You can get microclots, we call it thrombosis, and then the tumor cells, if they're traveling in the blood, can lodge there and set up metastasis. Again, no guarantees here, but you can increase your likelihood of disease-free living or longer life. Again, it may be, may be only talking days. You say, well, it didn't help my uncle. My uncle was doing everything right, and after he got the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, he only lived three months. You know, some people only live three weeks after that diagnosis, okay? You say, well, what difference does it make? If you're going to die, why not just get it over sooner? You know, let me tell you something as a physician. Some of the people that have ministered to me the most have been people with terminal illness. You know, we don't realize sometimes that, um, as Ellen White put it, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is sometimes the greatest trust that God gives us. 
You know, if we were to pull back the curtain and look into the future, I think of that great reunion day in heaven where there'll be a long line wanting to meet John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist's experience? He was the forerunner. He was giving the message that the Messiah was coming. And how did he feel in that prison? How did his disciples feel? They felt that Jesus had forgotten John. And John, ultimately, you know the story, meets an untimely end. He's beheaded. But Jesus says that there was no greater born among women than John the Baptist. Jesus didn't say John died early because he didn't have enough faith. You know, if he had just trusted me more, I would have delivered him like I delivered Peter, you know, from prison. That's not what Jesus said. Here's where I'm going with this. I can see many people coming to John the Baptist in eternity saying, John, what you went through encouraged me so much because when I was going through difficult times with my health, when I had those problems with my job, when I was dealing with those family issues, I was encouraged because I remembered that Jesus spoke about how blessed you were and it looked like God had forgotten you. It looked like God had allowed you to go to an untimely end But I was so encouraged when I read what Jesus said about you. And uh, John, I think, is going to say it was all worth it. He's going to say, I'm glad that so many could be encouraged by my witness. And, you know, sometimes when we go through difficult things, I'll just tell you the truth. I came from an agnostic background. And, you know, when people have a great life, everything looks great, they're healthy, you know, from the world's perspective, you know, and you're praising the Lord, people can say, yeah, yeah. I'd praise the Lord, too, if I had everything going for me like you. But when you praise the Lord in the midst of difficulty, that is a testimony, that, a testimony that people can't argue with. So, yes, uh, bad things happen. We struggle. Um, cognitive decline, I don't care how good your hemorrheology is. There comes a point for all of us, if we live that long, our cognitive function is likely to suffer, Okay. But what the research is showing, and we may not actually cover it in this lecture, but it's, it's, in, uh, it's in some of the material I have uh, available for you. You can stave off dementia. This is what the, all the researchers are saying. You can stave it off for multiple years by lifestyle, even if you've got dealt a bad genetic hand. So let, let's keep those things in mind. Let's talk a little bit about mental health and the Methuselah factor. Um, Sometimes I call this, instead of hemorrheology, the Methuselah factor. Now, why do you think I would do that? It's, some of you say it's simpler, right? You know, here we're going to speak for an hour or so about hemorrheology. And if you leave and someone says, well, how was the health talk? And you say, oh, it was just amazing. It was so interesting. Well, what was it about? Oh, it was about hemorrhage. Hemorrho- he- he- I mean, it'd be embarrassing, Right. So I tell people you can call it the H factor, if that's easier, or call it the Methuselah factor. Because I'm convinced that Methuselah had to have good what? Hemorrheology. Why? Why would Methuselah have to have good hemorrheology? Because he lived such a long time. But you know what happened to Methuselah? He died. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, let's look at hematocrit. So remember, we talked about this. You don't want to have too low a hematocrit. You're anemic. 
And uh, if you're anemic, you will have a longer choice response time. Some of you aren't familiar with this, so let me explain it. Choice response time, if you're in a laboratory and they're measuring this, you might be sitting in front of a computer and you've got to hit a, uh, a button when a certain image comes up. Or, uh, or you might have several buttons and a certain thing comes up in the right-hand corner of the screen and you have to hit a certain button and something comes. And they're measuring how quickly it takes you to respond. I see some of you still don't get it. Let, let, me, let, me, let me give you an illustration. We're going to do a, a choice response time exercise, okay, right now. Okay, when I say the name of a color, I want you to raise your right hand. You following along? As soon as I say the name of a color, you're supposed to raise that right hand and see how quickly you can do it. Are you all ready? Fire truck. No, that's actually not a color, okay? No, okay, let's, let's try again. Berry and Springs. Blue. Okay. Now, who had the best choice response time? The person who just put up their hand right now in the back corner of the room? No, no one just did that. Or someone whose hand went up real quick. Who had the best choice response time? That's right. The quickest, the shortest time is the best. That's what we're looking at here. So the lower the time, the better the brain functioning. And what you see here is if you're anemic, your brain will not function all that well. So this should give you some courage, ladies. Those of you, um, during the reproductive years, many women are prone to anemia, and you're not losing your mind. Uh, actually, you may just be a little bit functioning not quite as well as you could because you're anemic. But once you get to a, this is a modest hematocrit, isn't it real high? Once you get in here, your brain functions optimal, and then as the hematocrit goes up, what happens? That's right, it gets worse. You see, it gets higher. It takes longer to respond. So what this is showing is with hematocrit, there is this kind of sweet spot that is a normal range or actually a little bit lower than many people run. If you look at plasma viscosity, the lower it is, the better your mental functioning. What I'm trying to help you see is this stuff is extremely important, and we're going to hasten now to things that you can do to change it. It will help you with your risk of diabetic complications. Uh, the research indicates it will decrease your risk of weight gain if you have better blood fluidity, but um, I think we're giving you enough information to show you this stuff is important, right? You agree? This sounds like an important topic. So hopefully now you're motivated to learn some things you can do that can improve your blood fluidity. So let's look at 10 strategies to help you achieve optimal longevity and more. By the way, um, I put this book up here. Some of you know uh, Pastor Steve Wolberg. Steve uh, talks a lot about these principles in a book that he called End Times Health War. And this book is here because um, probably about six months ago, an evangelical pastor who's raised up, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 churches throughout the world, a number of seminaries, read this book. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. Read this book, Steve Wolberg's book, and he called Steve up. And he said, I want you to come and speak at our camp meeting. They didn't call it a camp meeting. It was a convocation. And uh, Steve wasn't able to go, and uh, he asked me if I would go in his place. So a few weeks ago, we were actually in Pennsylvania meeting with this uh, uh, gathering of, of evangelical Christians and uh, sharing with them Bible health principles. 
And the point is the world is looking for this stuff. And, uh, and it's, it's found right in the pages of scripture. Let's talk about 10 things you can do to improve your blood fluidity. Here's the first one. This is a surprising one to some people. It's donating blood. Maybe we should have arranged to have a blood drive here at camp meeting. You did. When was it? Good. Now, see, you didn't know that you were doing it to improve your hemorrheology, but you did. Well, I wish I had had the word on it. Okay. So donating blood improves blood fluidity. Now, this is really interesting. I have a series that I give called Ancient Secrets Modern Health. Some of you may have seen it back there. Um, I'll tell you, I have a concern. I've done a lot of cross-cultural work over the years. Right now, I'm doing a lot of work with Native Americans. And a number of you have come and told me, you said, well, I listened to your radio show, Dr. DeRose, on Strong Tower Radio. Some of you Strong Tower listeners, okay? And uh, I, I host a radio show called American Indian Living. So for many years, I lived in Oklahoma. And when uh, some Native American Adventists were starting a radio program some years ago, they invited me to host the show. So we've been doing that for, I don't know, 12 or 15 years now. And the show goes out on some 150 stations. Many of them are native-owned stations on reservations and other places. And so I have a lot of sensitivity for people coming from different cultural backgrounds. What I've noticed among us as Seventh-day Adventists, if someone comes from a different cultural mindset, especially if that mindset has been affected, as all of them have been, by spiritualistic or even ungodly principles. We want to label that whole way of looking at the world and everything associated with it as of the devil. But what I notice is I work with people from different cultural backgrounds. I'll just tell it to you this way. If you read Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, basically God says there that every person has a revelation of God in nature. Everyone knows that there's a God because of his revelation in nature. And so no one has any excuse for saying, I'm an atheist because there's no evidence for the existence of God. Okay? That's Romans 1. But here's the point. God is revealed where, according to Romans 1? In nature, in creation. And so what I've noticed over the years is cultures that have lived close to nature often, maybe mixed up with a lot of false ideas, still have insights into truth that are powerful. Now, why I'm telling you all this is if you know anything about American history, you realize that the power of blood fluidity was well known in the early American colonies. What was one of the methods of treatment? Bloodletting. Now, today we want to label this as barbaric and crazy, and of course they weren't balancing the humors. This is just based on false science. But here's my point. Nothing is perpetuated in a culture unless there is some, generally, unless there is some sound science behind it. So when you take some blood out, the average person benefits because it improves their blood fluidity. So back in the 1700s, if someone was having heart problems and they took a little bit of blood out, do you realize it could well have helped them? 
But you take a lot of blood out, and what happens? Yeah, many people believe, you know, that George Washington died from too frequent bloodletting blood in the context of an acute illness. What I'm simply saying is this, and, and, and I share this perspective in The Ancient Secrets, Modern Health. Instead of us labeling people who practice traditional Chinese medicine and ancient Indian medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, as, uh, you know, as being guided by Satan, by the way, this does not help you win the rapport of those people. Do you, would you realize that? <laughs> if you can see what truth that, the, that those cultures have observed. Now, yes, it's all mixed up with crazy ideas. And I don't tell people you know, to go to the local acupuncturist. By the way, there is some scientific evidence that supports acupuncture in certain circumstances. Um, I know that's probably opening a can of worms that we maybe didn't need to open, but there's a very good researcher at the Mayo Clinic has found that many of these acupuncture points correspond to something called myofascial pain distribution. And, um, and so there's actually a sound science, but the traditional Chinese, they got it all mixed up with, you know, we're balancing the yin and the yang, and we're, you know, we're changing the energy flow in the body. And of course, this is not in keeping with God's understanding of how he created us. So yeah, I don't, I don't advocate traditional Chinese cosmology or their worldview, but I say there's things we can learn from honestly looking at what they observed over the centuries and millennia. Same is true of Ayurvedic medicine. By the way, how many of you have heard the statement that two hours sleep before midnight is worth four after? Have you heard that? Any of you know where it comes from? Some of you are saying Ministry of Healing, Ellen White. Um, now, I don't read Sanskrit, but what I'm told is that this is part of Ayurvedic teaching going back, uh, going back millennia. Now, you say, well, I don't know how they kept track of midnight back then, but, uh, but they had, and, and not snacking. This is something that comes, uh, I'm told, in the Ayurvedic tradition. So did they have some things that were sound insights that God even endorsed? Yes. So, so don't, if someone says, well, I went to an Ayurvedic practitioner and they helped me, don't say, well, you, you were basically being treated by Satan. Okay, this is evil and you should repent. Um, by the way, I prescribe, just to let you know, I prescribe Ayurvedic herbs. Uh, turmeric, the, the orange yellow spice, one of the herbs that we uh, recommend for anti-inflammatory effects. But I'm not, I don't believe we're balancing the dosha forces. Okay, do you understand the difference? Okay, so that's a little bit of a digression. And uh, sometimes when we have a, a shorter series, you know, all my, all my presentations are generally several hours long. So, you know, I'm always picking and choosing. Some of you are going to be frustrated that there's more slides than we'll spend a lot of time with. And we even have some, you know, scriptures in here that we won't spend perhaps as much time with. But when you're ministering to others and giving blood, you're actually ministering to yourself as well. Now, this is no surprise. If you want to improve blood fluidity, what do you need to drink more of? Water. Definitely. And um, we could speak a lot about beverages. The only beverage that I find mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2 and in the New Earth is, uh, is water. Now, you might say, well, Jesus, though, said that he would drink the fruit of the vine in heaven, and that is true. He said he wouldn't drink it again until he drank it with his disciples in heaven. So I'm not saying there won't be any other beverages, but it is interesting um, that we have a lot of data on the benefits of water drinking. 
This is one of the most uh, excellent studies on the subject. It's now a fairly old study from way back in 2002. And so most of you have probably seen it. But even when I speak with Adventist audiences, I find that many people haven't seen some of this great work that came out of the Adventist Health Study over a decade ago. And what they looked at was just a comparison of modest increase in water intake. So less than two glasses of water a day compared to more than five. And they found that for men and women both, it decreased the risk of a fatal heart attack about 50%. I mean, it's powerful. Just drinking a little bit more water. By the way, who were the people being studied? They were Seventh-day Adventists. So presumably they were a healthier bunch to begin with. And so drinking more water. By the way, some of these people still died from heart attacks. So you could say, hey, but my grandfather, he drank four gallons a day. <laughs> By the way, there is too much water. And um, it's in that range. If you're, if you're perfectly healthy and you're not on any drugs that influence your water balance, it's probably in the range of four to five gallons a day that, would, that it would take to uh, jeopardize your life. You can die from something called dilutional hyponatremia. You drink so much water that your blood sodium concentration gets so low that you can actually die. Now, if you're sweating out in the heat, it can happen sooner than that. But what I'm trying to let you know is there's a big margin between five glasses and five gallons. You understand? So um, now it doesn't count if you're drinking other fluids. In the Adventist Health Study, people that drank more of other fluids actually had greater risk of dying of a heart attack. So stick with the water. That is the optimal fluid. And uh, water has actually been shown in the research to actually help you lose weight. This is really interesting. Drinking a half liter of water, uh, pure water, will raise your metabolism 24% for an hour. It's got to be pure water. You can't have vitamins and uh, can't put lemon and and stuff. I'm not saying that you can't get hydrated that way, but this uh, metabolic effect is based on something that we call osmolarity or osmolality. It's the, it's the concentration of the fluid, and somehow God has wired us that this stokes up our metabolism. Water can do all kinds of other great things for you. Uh, what's a useful rule of thumb as far as how much to drink? Yeah, I like that one too. Half your body weight in ounces. Yeah, I think that's a good one. So uh, if you weigh 160 pounds, how much should you drink in a day? Yeah, so 80 ounces or 10 8-ounce glasses. That's a good rule of thumb if you're not working out in the heat and going through a lot of fluid. Now, if you're uh, actually, I, even though I'm here, I, there are patients that I'm taking care of at a distance. You know, now everything's electronic. And I was looking at a patient's lab work last night, and uh, his sodium is getting quite low. And this fellow has heart failure. So I sent a note to my nurse saying, call this gentleman up and tell him he's got a choice. He can either cut his water pill in half or he can drink less water. I would hope he would choose to cut the water pill in half. But uh, his sodium was getting too low because with his heart failure condition, maybe he was just drinking, you know, eight, 10-ounce glasses. So for some people... That can be too much if you've got heart conditions, kidney failure, other things. But by and large, that's a good rule of thumb. And um, we could talk about problems with other beverages. You know, um, we could talk about caffeine and alcohol in some detail. Let me just tell you a little bit about this. 
Some of you, if you have respiratory problems, may over the years have used caffeine derivatives like theophylline. It's not as popular a drug to use today, but there are medicinal uses of some of these things, and uh, caffeine is one of them, and caffeine-related compounds. So I think we have to be careful. Just like we don't brand certain cultures as evil, we shouldn't just have a litmus test for what's evil and what's good. Are you following along with me? Um, we were doing some uh, health education and evangelistic work in Africa, in a rural area. How many of you think we told them, that the, the people there, that they should all be total vegetarians? How many of you think we told them that? Um, if we did, we would have been totally irresponsible because some of those people, the best they had, they felt they were rich if they had a chicken and they could eat those eggs. Um, and some of them, you know, there are, there's people in the world that are starving. And, uh, you know, they, they can't just walk to this nice health food store that you have here. In, uh, is it actually an Edmore address? The hell? Yeah. Yeah, my wife was in there yesterday and told me what a nice selection they had. Not only told me what a nice selection of foods they had, she even brought some of them home. So uh, we were very glad for that. But they, don't have, they didn't have that in that little village. There was no health food store. And uh, even if there was, or I should say even if there were, because there wasn't, they couldn't have uh, afforded it. So here, here's the point. We love to make rules. And if we follow all the rules, we can feel very good about ourselves. You know, there was a group of people in biblical times that did that. Do you know who they were? Yeah, they were the Pharisees. But, you know, God is extremely wise, and he works with us where we're at, okay? And I always tell people it's never wrong to do the best you know. Never wrong to do the best you know. Now, God is trying to show us something better, but sometimes we don't know anything better. And uh, whether it's a medication, whether, you know, caffeine being used medicinally or not, caffeine does have deleterious effects on blood fluidity. And um, this is true, by the way, of any drug. It, it may be indicated, I, have, I just told you, as a patient of mine that's on a diuretic, it's the best I know in that person. Now, I'll be honest with you. I work with a, an, a population right now that's um, uh, very financially needy. They're almost all on public assistance. And most of them did not grow up with good health habits. Many of them have uh, had a significant hand in undermining their own health just because they didn't know any better. Some, even though they know better, I have homeless patients and others that, you know, are now, you know, under Obamacare, actually able to walk into a doctor's office and, and uh, we don't have to treat them as a charity case because they, they actually can access some health care benefits. But the point is, um, many of these people have a need for medications because their lifestyle is just so bad. And I'll tell them about a healthier lifestyle and some of them laugh at me. Um, really, you know, or they'll think it's, it's just a joke that I'm going to talk with them again about uh, how they could get off all their drugs if they would just be a vegetarian or stop smoking. But uh, they're not quite ready for that. Some of them are. Some of them are. So we, we still share information with all of them. But uh, let me tell you a little bit about caffeine. Caffeine very efficiently absorbed. And uh, one of the main ways caffeine works is by blocking adenosine receptors. Now, adenosine is involved in the body, and widespread throughout the body, and it has a number of useful functions. Adenosine helps to relax blood vessels. It reduces the stickiness of platelets, so it makes your blood less likely to clot. 
It interferes with stress hormones in a good way, keeps your stress hormone levels lower, has favorable effects on blood pressure and other things as well. Here's the point, adenosine is generally good, but sometimes people perceive adenosine as bad. Let me give you an example. Let's say um, a family member died in California. And about, how, by the way, I didn't drive, we flew out here. How long a drive is it from here to Northern California? How many of you think you could do it in five hours? No, I don't think you could pull it off. So let's say maybe it's, I don't know, 24 hour drive, maybe driving straight through. No, it's going to take longer, 36? Wow, okay. Uh, you're a truck driver, how long did it take? 40 hours, okay. So the, the funeral's in 48 hours, and you don't have money for tickets, and there's six of you that are going, so you're going to drive straight through, and you're getting kind of weary, and you're saying, this adenosine's really bad, my stress hormones are low, I'm going to try to block adenosine and raise my catecholamines. Now, most people don't say that, but that's how caffeine works. It raises stress hormone levels and it'll keep you awake, right? Now, I don't re recommend that, but I don't recommend, you know, that your loved ones die either. You understand, certain things happen, and if, if that's the best you know, do it. Could you uh, address how caffeine helps migraine headaches? Okay, so this astute woman in the front row, they always told me that the best students sat in the front row, okay? But I'll let you know I did pretty well and I often sat in the back. Uh, but this is right here. Adenosine is a local vasodilator. It relaxes blood vessels, which is usually good. But now if you have a migraine headache, your blood vessels are dilated. They're opened up and they're causing a headache. So if you take caffeine, what will it do? It'll block adenosine, it'll constrict the blood vessels, and it'll help the headache. So many of the common migraine preparations have caffeine in them. Now again, if that's, if that's what you know best to do, if you have to take some caffeine, do it. Now I will tell you something though, it's a slippery slope, because there are many patients, and I've seen them over the years, the reason they have chronic headaches is because of caffeine use. Okay. Uh, Vicki is saying that she talked with a neurologist who says it's a rescue medicine, it's an emergency medicine. And he showed me, from trying to do nothing for so many years, he showed me the lesions in my brain from doing nothing. Okay. Really okay. So Vicki is sharing some personal experience and saying basically, you know, take care of your medical condition. If you have migraine tendencies, treat it, right? Isn't that the message you're, you're making? Yeah, you have to treat it. And if caffeine is the best thing, that, that you know at that particular point in time, do it, but there's, and I see some of the, you know, she might be gonna tell us about feverfew and butterbur or something, what have you got on your mind? Uh, we hand out a migraine protocol and almost everybody gets relief. Okay, now she, you don't notice what she said, almost everybody, and you're exactly right. Many people respond to many of these natural things, but some don't, okay, some don't. And so don't feel badly that you must not be taking the right amount of butter burr or fever few. Both of those are herbs that can help prevent migraines. There are vitamin deficiencies that can predispose to migraines. So the whole point is, there's a lot of things that we can do, but at the end of the day, we're all wired differently, okay? And uh, so caffeine in general is something harmful to blood fluidity. If you have to use it medicinally, if you're out in the wilderness and you're having an asthma attack, We'd put you in a hot half bath, if we could, out there in the wilderness, or at least give you a hot foot bath, 
and put cold on your back if we get some, you know, something cold. Try to break that asthma attack. But if there's some caffeine around, that likely would help you too, okay? Because it uh, actually can help open up uh, airways. So I'm trying to give you some, some balance on these topics. But the point is, for most people, they're using caffeinated beverages socially. They become habituated to them. And they get headaches not because they have a migraine tendency, but because they're addicted to caffeine. Well, we've got uh, about 10 more minutes and about eight more things to go through that can help your blood fluidity. Now, fortunately, I know many of you already are eating more plant foods. I was in the cafeteria, and I saw that there were no, uh, no meat products there. So if you're eating in the cafeteria, you were uh, likely eating more plant foods. The phytochemicals in plants in that original diet actually are things that you can benefit from without ever having to go to the health food store and buy these cutting-edge nutrients. You can get them right in the foods. And by the way, God is still ahead of the medical profession. There are phytochemicals in the plants that have not yet been discovered. Estimates are that there are still thousands of undiscovered phytochemicals. And we could go through all kinds of examples. Uh, these are the anthocyanins. Uh, I had red apples this morning. I had tomatoes uh, at lunch. And I was getting anthocyanins, even though, honestly, I wasn't thinking about it. I, I, the thought of anthocyanins did not even cross through my mind. And my blood vessels were becoming relaxed. It was activating cartilage repair. You know, so if you have osteoarthritis, uh, these anthocyanins can help you there. They have cancer preventive effects. Therefore, true or false, if you eat lots of anthocyanins, you will never have inflammation, you will never get cancer, you will never have arthritis. True or false? No, it's false. These things help, but again, they're all superimposed on whatever background we bring to the table. Here's curcumin. That's the uh, active agent in turmeric. That's what turmeric looks like if you've actually seen the, uh, the root itself. And you can see, uh, many of these things help blood fluidity, decreasing platelet stickiness. Um, by the way, curcumin has, um, uh, we call it metal, heavy metal chelating effects. We'll talk about that more tomorrow by God's grace that uh, show some promise in decreasing the risk of things like Alzheimer's. So again, we could go through all these different phytochemicals, but the point is you don't have to know all this. You just eat, eat the fruits and vegetables and you get these benefits. Eat the whole grains, eat the beans, and you get things that improve your blood fluidity and decrease your risk of a host of problems. Achieving and maintaining an ideal weight. Again, we could, you know, we could give you balance on this topic as well, and I tried to do that yesterday. You know, we're so quick to judge people based on how much they weigh, and, um, you know, there's people, you know, I come into my practice, some of them have lost huge amounts of weight and have kept it off, but they still, according to the tables, are overweight. Are they successful or are they not? Yeah, don't be, if you're seeking to cooperate with God, don't be ashamed of how much you weigh, okay? Because not everyone is going to have the same body type. And by the way, um, God knows what he's doing in spite of what our background is. And so as you cooperate with him, you're going to weigh less than you would have if you weren't cooperating with him, okay? You may never look like your brother or sister. You, know, you all know about recessive genes, Right? There's some genes that you don't see anywhere in the family, and you got a copy from both your parents, and you're the one who's got that disease that does, or that tendency that no one else in the family has. It's not because you're a sinner worse than anyone else. It's not because 
You know, you ate that apple when your mom told you not to eat between meals when you were five years old, okay? That's really not why you have the problem. Okay, so um, some of you are feeling smug that you're not overweight. The message in some of this is if you've got extra body fat, your hemorrheology is worse than it should be. And there are some of you in this room that may have a bigger waistline but less body fat than someone who looks thinner. Do you know that's possible? And uh, we won't, in this lecture, be able to talk about fitness and fatness, but much of the research shows if you have to choose between being thin and unfit and being overweight and fit, you would be better off choosing what? Overweight and fit. Yeah. So, point five, exercise every day. Now, some of you are getting worried. You say, aren't we supposed to take a day of rest? Don't you believe in the Sabbath, Dr. DeRose? I'll tell you a personal experience about this. As a young Seventh-day Adventist, I came into the church as a young man, and um, I decided I would just be very sedentary on the Sabbath. And I found after a few years that that was my worst day. I felt the worst because um, I tend to have some digestive health issues, and uh, I found that... uh, I, had, I did best if I was act, did something active on the Sabbath, too. And I know many of you will go for a walk or something. I didn't have that broad perspective. Uh, and so um, exercise daily. Jesus, you find him many times walking on the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong. I, I don't go to the health club and train on Sabbath, okay? I don't do some of my favorite outdoor activities on Sabbath, like chopping wood. Exercise and blood fluidity. The more you do, the better your blood fluidity There's a number of reasons for it, and there's some of the stuff on fitness and fatness, but I already told you about it, so you're glad that we're skipping over it quickly. Others of you that are very frustrated that we're skipping through these slides, almost all of them are in the DVD Longevity Plus. Now, some of you think that's just a commercial to sell a lot of DVDs. It's really not. If I wanted to make a lot of money, I wouldn't even bring the DVDs here. I'd say go online, you know, pay the $20, pay the shipping and handling, fees and, you know, get the DVDs. But, um, you know, we're trying to get them out so that you can use them in your own ministry, use them in your church, use them in your home. Yes, thank you. Sonia, do you, we have that, uh, boy, I'm glad Vicki is here. You see, there's some people that are on top of things and others that are just wandering around acting like they're lecturers. If you didn't get this sheet yesterday, uh, let's see if we can find you a pen, too. If you get on our sign-up sheet, we will give you the uh, PDFs of, um, so a handout, handouts of all the uh, slides that I show. Okay, so any slide that we show, even if I just showed it for a second, so you should be happy. The more slides I show, the more likely you are to have that in your handout. So I will email them to you. Yes, you have to give us an email address, print only. Um, print only? What does that mean? <laughs> oh, yes, print. Yes, print your email address. Yes. Don't write it in Cyrillic or something else. Okay? Um, this statement has helped me over the years. Go out and exercise every day, even though some things indoors have to be neglected. We have this on good authority. Every day. My Life Today. Great uh, devotional book. And then here's another great one from that same uh, page. Morning exercise in the free, invigorating air of heaven or cultivating flowers, small fruits, and vegetables is necessary to what? 
What do you think she's talking about here? Hemoreology, that's right. <laughs> yep, that's what she's talking about. It's the surest safeguard against colds, coughs, and a hundred other diseases. She's speaking to us right about hemoreology. And what is part of the equation? Daily exercise, especially morning exercise. So we were thankful for this nice, what do they call it, the Fred Meyer Fitness Trail? That's amazing. So you can just get out and walk for miles out there. Is that an old railway right-of-way? Is that what it was? Okay. Well, I recommend useful outdoor work. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, God willing. And uh, I'm, I'm really like you guys, so I'm trying to go through all these slides so I have an excuse to send them all to you. You know not to smoke. By the way, smoking increases your risk of dementia. Adequate vitamin D, very important for optimal blood fluidity. I do recommend supplementation, especially in the winter months, if you live in Michigan. And here's why. You can see uh, you guys are probably, some of you uh, in this range, like Boston, four months of the year you can't make vitamin D because the sun doesn't come high enough above the horizon so you can get those ultraviolet B rays that you need to make vitamin D. Get adequate sleep every night. This is the operative term, every night. So sleeping is actually not allowed in my lectures, okay? And uh, if you sleep deprived, this is just telling you it increases all these inflammatory markers. We're together for the whole week, so we'll probably have a chance to talk about some of this. Dental health, very important. Oral health improves blood fluidity. If you don't take care of your teeth, you're at higher risk of stroke and other things. And of course, you want to control stress. Some say, well, why is this an illustration of stress? This boy is trying to drink water only, and they stuck uh, three straws in his mouth. He's trying to figure out how to do that. Okay? Well, listen, thank you for your attentiveness. I know there's a lot more material that we cover in any of these hours, but that's why we have other resources for you. Some final comments and prayer from you, Vicki? Is that it, or you want me to do? Okay, let's close with prayer, then Evelyn will have a, a few... Uh, uh, words of orientation. Maybe before we pray, I'll give you one notice too. Um, I will, going back where the resources are and meet with some of you there briefly, I will not meet in the ABC and conflict with the uh, other health program here. We'll try to figure out a time later in the week if you haven't caught up with me where I can meet with you individually. Can we just say thank you and amen to Dr. Okay. Okay. Let's pray together and then we'll hear from, uh, then we'll hear from Evelyn. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can study together, that we can press close to you and realize that you're trying to encourage us wherever we're at, whatever challenges, whatever problems we've had, you are the great physician. And although we don't always see your healing power manifested the way we might choose for it to be manifested, you assure us that you're at our right hand to guide and to bless. Father, help us to cooperate with you, enhance our witness, our testimony for you. Bless us and make us a blessing is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.